get out of the announcements fast because these are all being broadcast. Um, watch that. All right. Uh, now I've got to be really quick on my announcements. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's probably good for me. So we're, we, we're, we are on week 13, and we've been going through the book of Acts. I started this kind of selfishly as we turned five. I wanted to know kind of where are we um, I can't lose that though. Okay. So, okay. I want to know where are we as a church, but where should we be as a church? So we're looking at the, at the original church, the one that you know, was pure, the one that Peter and Jesus started. And that's what we've been kind of looking to. But at the same time, we're kind of getting ideas of what we're supposed to be like as believers, because these are probably the best example of believers, because these were hand-picked by Jesus and hand-taught by Jesus, and they're the people he started the church with. So we're kind of looking at that. And uh, so this week, we're kind of going on to a situation where we've watched the church expand dramatically, but now we're watching this, the whole Jewish empire is now striking back. There is no real empire of Jews, but uh, we have the church, and now the political empire is going to be fighting back as well. And we're going to start talking about a little guy. Um, I mean, not Zacchaeus little, not that way, but a little man in terms of uh, character and stature. Now, you know, you know, the, you know the Sunday school, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Uh, so if I were to make up a song about him, it would kind of be based on this, I think, a little bit. He's... Uh, you are a crazy little man. Yeah, a crazy little man. This guy comes from a long line of crazy little men. This guy's name's Herod. He comes from a line of Herods, and they're all crazy. Um, but more importantly, they're puppet kings. They're kings that Rome has put on the throne of Israel after they conquered them. Now, Rome picks their people very carefully. They want people who are smart enough to follow orders, but not smart enough to lead an insurrection. They'd had some problems with this, in fact. Uh, if you look at the history of Jerusalem, the kings kept raising up who'd fight Rome. So they took care of that. They put Herod's family. And that didn't happen anymore because the Herod's family all has this unique trait. They're selfish. And they really only look at what's best for them. And so from before Jesus is born all the way up to here, we're, we're watching this line uh, which sits on the throne. Now, the Jews hate him because they see him for what he is. He's just a puppet. He's not upholding any of the real uh, laws of, of, the, of the commandments or, the, or the, of the law of Moses. He's just a puppet, and he's a selfish, greedy puppet. Uh, and something happens here as we go into Acts chapter 12. Now, we don't know what, but something happens to make Herod suddenly angry at the Christian church. It is now, by the way, by, by Acts 12 being called the Christian church. It wasn't for the first 10 books of Acts. It was called the way, followers of the way. But the Greeks named it Christian, and so that name's kind of stuck now, uh, so as we're here. But what's happened is they've said something about Herod, probably because he's selfish. He doesn't care what they say about the law. They probably said something about him personally. It got him angry, and he busts into a church setting, and he uh, takes all the people away and puts them in prison, and he kills one of the disciples. So about that time, Herod the king laid his hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. That's a really gentle way of saying he was going to beat them. Uh, and he had James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, put to death with a sword. Now, this is James, who was a disciple. This is not James, half-brother of Jesus, who later would write the book of James. There's like four different James. It's hard to keep them all straight, but that's who this is. This is the first and only disciple we see in Scripture murdered uh, for the cause. Now, they all will be murdered except for John, and if you add Paul in there, there's an extra one, but um, <clears throat> we don't see those. Those all take place after the book of Acts ends. This is the only one we see. Put to death with a sword. It might have mean he was beheaded, but it almost feels like this was just sent in to cause destruction, almost like a hot-headed, seize them. He may have just been killed on the spot 
with a sword as well. But um, this is what happens next. What happens next is that he finds out that the Jews in the temple liked it. And so uh, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And, and it says this during this time of unleavened bread. I'll explain that in a second. But what happens is, so you have this man who's selfish, and here's what's weird about selfish people. They want everybody to love them. You would think they wouldn't care, right, because they're selfish. No, no, they want people to love them. It's like, I love me. Everyone else should love me too. And so he sees an opportunity now to have the Jewish people love him. Oh, that's all I have to do is kill disciples? Watch this. And so he one-ups them, and he goes after Peter, who's the head of the church, and he's going to kill him too. This is just about exactly a year after Jesus was seized. The unleavened bread is right at Passover time. So about a year later, Peter's being taken by Herod, and Herod fully intends to put him to death, but he has to wait until after all the festival goes by because he doesn't want to be unclean. He wants to be able to be invited over. Plus the fact he's right now really hot. Uh, he's a hot ticket item to invite to your, your dinners, right? So, so he's enjoying his, his little celebrity uh, swelling of, of people in the area. And so we, we see this, and you go, well, man, why would, why would this man be like this? Well, this man was like this before he became king. I think we need to understand that. Uh, you know, sometimes we have a higher opinion of people who are in power. Well, if it's a judge or, you know, a senator or a president, that must mean they're good people. But actually, the reality is that power does not refine character. Power reveals character. And so if you're a little selfish man before you have power, you're simply now a little selfish man with power. And that will reveal who you are to anybody who's paying attention. And that's what's happening. And so that's, you know, why character matters. That's why it really matters when, when we talk about people who are going into you know, places of power, what their character is, because their power is not going to make them better. It's simply going to reveal who they are. And it would be really simple for us to take a look at that and say, well, this is one of those, what are you going to do moments in the Bible? Yeah, what are you going to do? People are going to be people. You know, they're going to be evil little people out there. What are you going to do? And you could take a look at uh, Herod, and we could kind of dismiss him that way. But I kind of want to turn this around a little bit and make it a little more personal, because this isn't just true of Herod. This is true of anybody, including us. We get power. It will reveal our character. We will, we will be revealed for all to see. And the more power you get, the easier it is to have that character revealed. And I say this because we're oftentimes praying for things, which is essentially power. We don't look at it that way, but anytime we're asking for God's miraculous power to come into our lives, you know, we're asking for power, right? And if God's miraculous power comes into our lives and people are looking at us now because of something that's happened, we have to understand that now our character gets revealed. Are we really sure we want that to happen? I think maybe some of us are asking for things, and, and we could also be asking for better jobs. We could ask for a higher position in our work, a better position, something going on that makes us a better position in a family, uh, in the neighborhood, in the community, whatever. But all these things we got to understand is going to just simply come in and reveal who we are. It's not going to make us better. A lot of times we think it, man, if I were just a rich man, God, I'd be so much more moral and righteous. But that's not really the way it works. If you're moral and righteous before money or without money, it, you're going to be the same person. It's just now you're going to be revealed for what that is. And so I think we may be careful a little bit about what we ask God for because if he gives it to us, it's going to reveal who we are. And I think sometimes he actually holds off giving to us because he wants to work on our character before he gives us the gift. We know this a little bit because Jesus talks about this in Luke. He said, look, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with two riches? Now he's actually picking up one, which is probably the number one. What have you done with your money? If you want to know what your character is, look at your checkbook. 
In fact, I would say that if you want to know who you are, look at the three T's. Look at your treasure, look at your time, and look at your talents. What are you using them for? What are you doing with those three things? What are you, looking, what are you doing with your t- talent? What are you doing with your money? And what are you doing with your time? If you just want to know who you are as a person, take a look at that, because that will reveal who you are. Jesus is picking the number one of that. He's saying, what are you doing with the money? And he's like, put it way down here. He says, worldly wealth, it's, it's nothing. What, what about true riches? Now, he's talking about people here, really. He's talking about the true riches, which is the people in the church, the people in the community, people in your family. But he could also be talking about gifts. I, I can give you real riches, riches that's much more valuable than money. But can I trust you with it, is what he's saying. And he says, then he uses this as the test. And he does this elsewhere, too. He says, uh, he says actually, where your, uh, where your uh, heart is, your treasure follows. Mm, got that backwards, right? But isn't that the way it's usually quoted? Where your heart is, your treasure follows? That's actually not what Jesus said. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart follows. If you want to put your heart somewhere, put your treasure there. That's, it's going to follow it. Jesus, Jesus knows how we're wired, right? So um, thank you all for catching that. By the way. Um, but, but so we have to understand that, that Jesus has said that. So let me just give you an example. So I'm, I don't know what our statistics are because we don't run these. I don't even know how to run these. But there have been studies done and polls done about giving in the church today in America. And the people who just were talking about the people who come to church, not the people who don't. The people who come to church, if you looked around and you've got 10 people, get a group of 10 people, one of them is tithing. 10%, one. There is two more who give regularly, and what we mean by that is once a month. Once a month giving is regular. Not a tithe, but they're giving something. So that's three out of 10. Of that, you know, there are another four who have given once that year. About, you know, maybe more than once, but given maybe once, twice that year. Three of them have never given at all, at all. Zero pennies, not a cent. Here's the amazing thing. All 10 of them have asked God for something. I promise you. <laughs> All 10 of them at some point in the time have fallen on their knees and asked God for something. If I, I can't trust you with this, how can I trust you with that? I think we have to understand that our character gets revealed too. We can't just throw it off in Herod and say, oh, well, what are you going to do? Anyway, let me get back to the story here. When he sees him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. You would think Peter was James Bond, the way they guard him now. Watch this. Intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So see, this is right at Passover time. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. So the whole church is praying for him. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. This guy is being watched. No one's going to sneak in. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And you would think that would alert everybody, but no one sees it. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up. I love this. I'm picturing the the angel like towing him. Hey, Peter, Peter, <laughs> wake up. You're like, Peter, what, what? And he says, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Now, I want you to catch something here that, you know, I was reading through this and it's, and, and this is really clear. This is really clear in, in, the, in the text. The angel will never tell Peter that he's being rescued. I think it's important because it kind of goes to the whole character of the book of Acts. The angel never says, psst, psst, Peter, wake up. I'm getting you out of here. Come on. You know, it's a jailbreak. Let's go. He never tells him that. He simply nudges him away by striking him in the side. Cracks me up. Peter, come on, get up. And he says, come, come on, follow me. 
So he, he, he'll never be told what he's doing. And, and, and actually, you'll, you'll see this because he, he, uh, it, it comes out in the text, actually, deliberately. The angel says, gird yourself, that's basically put on your pants, and put on your sandals, so he does. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So he's given him a series of orders, but never told him why. Right? Now, he's surrounded by soldiers. You can understand why Peter would be a little bit baffled by this. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was even real. I might be having a vision right now. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to just obey. You know, I'm going to keep going. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened by itself. You know, automatic door opening right there. And they went out and went along one street, and the angel immediately departed from him. So he's like, he disappears. And now Peter comes too. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure the Lord has sent forth his angel because he can feel the breeze in his hair, you know? It's like, well, now I'm really sure that's what this is. And he rescued me from the hand of Herod and all of the Jewish people were expecting. This is really amazing, but I want you to see that Peter gets where he gets because he obeyed what he was told. And this is consistent. This is like up until now, we're in chapter 12 now. It's amazing to me. Last week I said, what's amazing to me? How the book of Acts is usually about one person at a time. It really is. But it also amazes me that the book of Acts is full of this. Hey, Philip, I need you to go in the wilderness. Okay, off he goes. Doesn't tell him why. You know, hey, uh, I, I need you to go here. Okay, Peter, I need you to follow me now. All right. Whatever they say, I want you to go to this man, Saul, who's killing you all, and I want you to go pray for him. Okay. And they just do it. They're just told what to do and they do it. They're never told why. If you want to see the church in operation, the way God plans the church to be in operation, this is it. And I would say really honestly, as I get older, I'm becoming more and more convinced that this is Christianity in a nutshell. Walk as far as you can see and do as much as you know. That's it. Our problem is we always want the full picture first, right? Give me everything, then I'll do it. I don't understand why you want me to go there. Tell me first. And God says, now here's how it works. I'm going to show you a little, and you're going to walk there, and you're going to simply do what you know. What I've told you to do, just do that. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, because we have to learn to trust our shepherd. Now, I don't know if you know the scripture that the psalmist says. He says this. He says, the word is a lamp unto my feet. I don't know if you've ever had a lamp unto your feet before, like a kerosene lantern, you've been camping or anything. I used to go to church camp up at Seneca Hills Bible uh, camp up in uh, Franklin, PA. And we had, it was this, you know, built on a hill because it's, it's, you know, Pennsylvania. Everything's on a hill. So it was built on this hill and, and we had separate bathrooms from the cabins. So if you had to go to the bathroom at night, you had to go down this, you know, kind of windy path to this, this, this place where they, you know, you'd go to the bathroom. And they always told you to take a flashlight because they weren't real good about keeping the little lights that are on the poles lit. <laughs> they get burned out or whatever. And so sometimes there's big spots of blackness there. Uh, and it was, they were all down near the ground. It wasn't up high. It was down about a foot high off the ground, literally <laughs> lamp unto your feet. And, uh, you know, I was really bad about remembering things like flashlights. So I'd go out there and like, whoa, you know, you try and get your eye adjust. But sometimes it got really dark up there. And you could see these little circles of light illuminating it way down. And you go from one circle of light to the next circle of light to the next circle of light. And boy, it was bad when they had to skip because <laughs> now you had to kind of walk through there. <laughs> Please let there be no snakes. Please let there be no snakes. Okay, I see more light and I can go. That's how you walked. That's how God tells us to walk is the, the word of the Lord is a light at your feet. It's not a big shining light, the beacon over top of you that lets you see everything. It only lets you see a little bit. 
So walk as far as you can see and do as much as you know. It's amazing how these little tiny things that we just discount. Well, God, that can't be what you want me to do. Tell me something real. You know, that can't be it. Oftentimes, God speaks to us about something so small it seems insignificant, but that's what he's waiting for us to do. If I can't trust you with a little, how am I going to trust you with a lot? Will you be faithful in a little, or will you keep telling me you can only have a lot, right? I, I've told this story before, but um, a couple of years ago, I don't know how long, and this is going to surprise some of you. My wife and I were having a fight. I, I know, right? With me. I mean, I don't know. I don't understand it. But we were having a fight. And um, I don't remember what, what it was. I only remember that I was convinced it was her fault and she was convinced it was my fault. That's how most of our fights go. So I know that was there. And so we were arguing about something or other. And then my wife does what my wife does. She has this list of things that, that I have done that failed her. And, and she keeps that list in her head like, ready to go at any moment because women are cool like that. And um, so, she, so suddenly this wasn't just about this. It was, came out this whole list, right? And this list is a killer list because there's some stuff on there that is actually historical, nothing I can do about it now. And there's some stuff on there I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, re- I understand, I agree with her. Yep, you know, that's a bad situation or whatever. I just don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to fix that, right? And so I get frustrated because I always get frustrated when the list gets brought out. And so then when she's all done, um, she added one to the list. And that's the other thing about the list. It grows, it never subtracts. <laughs> and so then I was one added to the list. And the thing that was added to the list was this. And you promised me you would clean that car. And you didn't, and now it's dark almost, and it's starting to rain. So now I've got to get up tomorrow and get in a dirty car. It was a Saturday night. And, and I, I was going to put on something white, and now I don't even know if I can. Because I don't know if I can wear white in that car. Who knows what I'm going to get on myself. You know, I can't, I can't do that. And she storms off, so my list has now grown by one. <clears throat> and I, I'm looking at her and, you know, trying to get God to get on my side, but he's not helping me. And... Um, so I finally, I kind of was thinking about that list. I'm thinking, man, I can't, this list is impossible. And then I got that last one. I thought, well, shoot, I can wash a car. You know, it's dark, but I can still do it. All she really needs is to clean inside. I don't even have to clean it outside. So I went and I got, you know, the little indoor wiper cleaner thing. And I got some rags and I got the shop vac. And I went in the car because it was raining and shut, it, shut the door, had the lights on, you know. And I'm in there cleaning it up. I'm vacuuming and she hears it. And she comes running downstairs and she pounds on the window, you know. And I look up, it scared, scared me to death. You know, I wasn't expecting that. And you know how it is when you're vacuuming anyway. I'm like, oh. And she's like yelling at me. I can't hear her. I open the door and she says, don't think this is getting you off the hook just because you're cleaning. This is not, this is not, you know. And you know, I'm not, you're not buying me with this. I'm wise to you, pal. And, and um, I, I, you know, I got up. I, I said, look, I want you to hear me here. I can't do anything about that list. But I can clean a car. And I heard you. I'll clean the car. And then she went running back in the house because she was starting to cry. <laughs> she didn't want me to see that. And it changed everything. That stupid little act, right? Because what Victoria heard was he was listening, right? He can't do anything. Okay, he's still, we have work to do, she's thinking. But um, he listened. He listened to what I said, and he did what he could. Walk as far as you can see and do what you can. It's amazing sometimes just doing the smallest little thing is going to turn things around, but we sit there and think that's not going to do it. Instead of obeying God, we tell him why that's not going to work. Okay, so uh, moving on now. So when he realizes, this is Peter, 
he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, and where many were gathered and they were praying. This, by the way, is, I think, the funniest scene here in, in chapter 12. Uh, and he knocked on the door, and a servant girl named Rhoda, poor Rhoda actually gets named, so she's, she's infamous now, came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, you know, she's not open the gate, because remember, the church is under persecution right now. You just, just open up the door. You kind of who is it? You know, When she heard Peter's voice, and she knew it was Peter, because of her joy, she did not open the gate. I just, just love this. Instead, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front of the gate. Why didn't you let him in? You know, it's just like, like ah, it's Peter. You guys are running away. Peter's like, Rhoda, you, Rhoda, you still there? You know, knocking on the gate. And they said, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, no, maybe it's his angel. He's probably already dead. But Peter kept knocking. Poor Peter. You know, he's knocking on the door. And uh, he must have had a real moment with the Lord. You said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I didn't know it was literal, you know. And so, he, and so they go back and they open the door and they see them. And, him, and they're just absolutely amazed. And he motioned them, he quieted them down, and he described how the Lord had led him out of prison. He said, report these things to James. That would have been Jesus' half-brother. Can't call him his brother, I guess. Had a different father. <laughs> uh, and to James and the brother. And then he left and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. I love the, the writer here. It just puts things in such a subtle tone. There was no small disturbance. There was a huge uproar. What happened to Peter? I don't know. You were watching. Well, you were chained to him. Well, you were at the gate. How did this guy get out of here? It's, we had him dead to rights. And so when Herod comes and he searches everywhere for him and he can't find him, he examined the guards and then he ordered that they all get led away and executed, right? So someone's dying today. If it ain't Peter, guess who it is? Every one of you guards who let him out. And so I just want to throw this out there uh, because sometimes I think we're spending time watching over what God wants released. You know, we, we think it's up to us to watch it. It's our job. And God says, you know what? Just give that to me. I got this. And of course, they were following their orders, but we do this. We will watch over things in our lives, and we'll keep an eye on them instead of turning them over to the Lord. Psalm puts it this way, and this is a real good scripture, I think, for Veterans Day. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. There was no point in them even guarding Peter because God wasn't in that. In vain you will rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. God provides for those he loves even while they sleep. So sometimes we spend all this time worrying about things and watching over things and trying to hold on to things. And God said, just release it. I got this. And if he doesn't got this, we, <laughs> we can't keep it anyway. All right, but I want to come back to my last point here in, in this because I, I, something else hit me as I was reading through this text, and that's this. Um, why did God spare Peter and let James die? Let me put it another way. Was Peter more righteous than James? Because that'd be nice if it were true. I mean, if we had something in the text where we could say, yeah, yeah, that's why. Because Peter is just more righteous than James. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. In fact, there's stuff in the Bible that tells us that there was no difference in righteousness. Why would God spare Peter and not James? See, we want it to be righteousness because then it's something we can control. Or how about this? The church is praying for Peter the church wasn't praying for James. That must be why. But that's really not true either because later Peter will be caught and killed and the church prays for him. We want it to be about us, what we can do, what we can control. And if we can do that, then we got God's going to cover us. But it's not. It's about God. 
And we need to understand that God is working on levels that we don't see. And there's a heavenly aspect that we'll never even know. And we always want things to make sense right here and right now. You know, it's like I, I've said before, it's like we're watching a TV show and we want it to be a half hour sitcom that's done in 30 minutes. And God's watching something that's, you know, this huge thing that goes on for a very long time. And sometimes things don't get resolved in our time frame. And we have to understand that's what happens. And we saw Jesus um, handle this kind of question. Uh, so, so what happened here, this is really a kind of a wicked, evil thing that happened to some Galileans, which wouldn't have been too far from uh, where Jesus was, and, and he probably knew some of these people. The Galileans were doing sacrifices, and Pilate comes in with his, his guards, and he mocks them. Oh, you want this sacrifice to cleanse your blood? Well, what you ought to do there is throw your blood in there too. And he slaughters them. He mixes their blood with their sacrifices to mock them. It's sacrilege on every level, right? So some people who were there at the time came, and they told Jesus about certain Galileans. Pilate had mixed their blood with their sacrifice, and Jesus says, these people from Galilee suffer greatly. He doesn't mince any bones. They suffered. This is worse than you think. They suffered. They suffered. And then he asks them really the question they wanted to know. Do you think they were worse sinners than all those other Galileans? Why them? Why were they picked out? Why them? Boy, it'd be nice if we could say, well, they just were not as righteous as other people. That'd be great, except Jesus knows their righteousness. And Jesus says this, I tell you no. No. I'm telling, Jesus would know. Right? He said, I'm telling you, no, their righteousness was no less than the other people. He said, but unless you turn away from your sins, you all die too. What Jesus does here, don't even answer the question. What we want to know is, why do bad things happen to good people? That's what we want to know. Why would God let bad things happen to some Galileans and not others? Why? And Jesus says, you're looking at the wrong thing. What we worry about, what my father worries about, is the tragedy taking place in heaven. What we really need to worry about is of every Galilean alive or dead, who's going to heaven or not? Jesus came here for that purpose, to save us from this earth, not to make our life better here on earth. He said, and he up one's up, because what about those 18 people in Salome? They died when a tower fell on them. And that would have been an event of the day everybody knew about, right? Do you think they were more guilty than all those others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Jesus knows righteousness. He said, they're not guiltier. Here's the truth. Bad things happen to good people. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And what Jesus is saying is we get focused on what bad things are happening here on earth. And he's saying, you need to start worrying about the bad things that happen that keep you on earth. The worst tragedy is not what happens on earth that takes us to heaven. The worst tragedy is what does not happen on earth that keeps us from heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. You guys are looking at this all wrong. You need to understand that repentance of sins matters and and getting right with God matters because this earth is temporary. Heaven's forever. And you're worrying about how we can make this little temporary thing matter. And I'm telling you, you should be worrying about what comes after this. So Jesus' focus was on that. He never even answers the question about why bad things happen to good people. So uh, we know this happens again. Early on in Jesus' ministry, by the way, uh, he has to tell the same message to somebody very dear and close to him, uh, his cousin, a guy named John. We know him as John the Baptist. But, but Jesus and John, they were cousins. They grew up pretty close. Because if you remember, when, when Mary gets the news that she's going to conceive Jesus, she goes running to John's mother, 
They're very close. It's a very close part of his family. He knew John very, very well. John had been faithful. John had proclaimed the name of Jesus before Jesus was there, you know, fulfilling prophecy. And he had been very, very faithful. But at this moment, the other Herod, the earlier Herod, has taken John and put him in prison. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has just at this moment announced he's the Messiah. Now, you would think, okay, what does that have to do with anything? You have to understand what the Jews think the Messiah is. Jews believe the Messiah because he comes from the line of David. The Messiah will be a warrior king. That's what Jews believe. If you want to know why why Jews don't accept Jesus, because he wasn't a warrior. Now, there are like if you look at the, at the teachings of the, of the day, the ancient teachings of the Hebrews, there's like 14 different characteristics of Messiah. Like the first 13 of them all have scripture and prophecy based on them. Uh, that one about working, you'll never find a prophecy. God didn't put that one there. They did. They want that to be true. They want the Messiah to come and restore Jerusalem to glory on earth. That's what they want. But that's not what the prophecies say. That's not what Isaiah says. So when they come to him, they said, you know, they, they actually have this little kind of hidden message in their message to him. Now, John the Baptist, this is in Matthew 11, was in prison. And when he heard about the actions of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him. And they asked Jesus this question, are you the one who's supposed to come or should we look for someone else? In other words, are you here to set the captives free by sword or should we keep looking for someone else? Another way you could ask this question is, why is your cousin still in jail? if you're the Messiah. Why would you let that happen, right? And so Jesus answers him this way. Jesus says, go back and report this to John. Tell him what you see and what you hear. And here's what he lists. Blind people receive sight, disabled people walk, lepers are healed, deaf people hear, those who are dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. That's prophecy, by the way. Every one of those things is listed in the prophecy. He read this in Isaiah. I'm doing everything that the prophecy said the Messiah is going to do. And then he adds this. Blessed is anyone who does not give up their faith because of me. Just because I'm not the Messiah you thought I'd be doesn't mean I'm not the Messiah. I am the Messiah Messiah that God thought I am. Jesus did not come to be the Messiah we wanted him to be. He came to be the Messiah that God the Father wanted him to be. And that's that's what he told John. I'm not who you think I am, but I'm who you think I am. Or another way, it is what it is, but it's not what you think. I am the Messiah. I'm just not the warrior king you were expecting because that's not who the Messiah is. Jesus came to set the captive free from bondage of sin because what God worries about is forever. He's taking a much longer view than we are. And so we have to understand that. We have to understand that we, we are here for a purpose. Now, so let me get back to my question and answer it real quick. Why was Peter spared and not James? The only thing I can tell you is this. James' work was finished. Peter's was not. That's all I can tell you. Peter still had work to do. James was done. He died. He breathed his last breath breath on earth, and he breathed the breath of heaven the next thing. And I don't think James cared at all. (laughs) He's in heaven. Oh, great. And, and in fact, uh, if, if we all, you know, whatever was going on in our lives today, which is like the most important thing to us, and hey, listen, I'm with you. We live on this earth, and this earth affects us. I get that. But the most important thing here on earth to us right now, 10,000 years from now in heaven, you won't even remember it. 10,000 years. And that's not even the beginning of the beginning in heaven. 10,000 years later, you'll forget. 
This stuff will mean nothing to us then. It'll be such a small little tiny thing. It'll be like trying to remember something that happened to you one day when you were in kindergarten. I can't remember it. I kind of remember the time. It was real big when I was in kindergarten, but I don't remember it anymore. You know? Maybe I didn't get my purple grape juice that day. I don't know. Something really bothered me that day. I don't even know anymore. Because 10,000 years go by in heaven. And you forget. And I'm not saying that we just live for heaven. I, I, I get that. We live on earth, and God came here to be with you on earth and help, help you through what's going on here. But he never promised you that bad things would never happen to good people. In fact, he says there will be tribulation. You will go through it, but I'll be with you. The fire will come, but it will not burn you. The waters will come, but they will not overflow you because I am with you. He'll be with you. That's the promise. Emmanuel, God with us. He says, I'm coming to be with you, and then I'm going to take you with me. That's the promise of God. So if you take away heaven, earth is never going to make sense. <laughs> it just won't. You can't make everything make sense in this life. It's just not going to. You have to put heaven into it, and then that changes everything. That's okay. While we're still here, while we're still yet here, we have things to do. John, uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. Look, we don't give up. Our bodies are becoming weaker and weaker. Amen, hallelujah, I feel it. I, I walked the other day from my bedroom to the kitchen. It took me a lot longer than it used to. I don't know. It's like I seem to go as fast as ever, but it seemed to be slow. I don't understand. Our spirits are being renewed day by day. Our troubles are small. They last only for a short time, but they are earning for us a glory that will last forever. It is greater than all of our troubles. Sorry. So, we don't spend all of our time looking at what we can see. Instead, we look at what we can't see. That's because what can be seen lasts only for a short time, but what can't be seen lasts forever. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are yet in this body, we are absent from the Lord. What he's saying is, hey, if I'm here, I'm not with God. I want to be with Jesus right now in heaven, but I'm not. You know how I know? Because I still have this body. So I know that I'm absent from the Lord. I like how he puts that. He's saying, I'm absent from the Lord. Where I want to be, where I should be, where I need to be, I'm absent from there because I'm here because I still have this body. And I know that because I still have this body. But we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. Gee, I wish I could go home, he says. I wish I could be like James. I wish I could be home with the Lord right now. I wish I could. But, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to God. I'm going to be pleasing to God and with God there. I'm going to be pleasing to God and with God here. Whichever it is, I'm going to be there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one will receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He's saying, one day we're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, I gave you time on earth. I gave you gifts. I gave you strength. I gave you all these things. What'd you do with it? What'd you do with it? He says, that's what I want to be. When I'm there, I want to be able to, I can say, I did everything I could. God, I, I walked as far as I could see, and I did everything I knew to do. Right? That's, that's what he's saying. We have to understand that that's our purpose here on earth. We just keep, keep walking. We keep persevering. Someday God will take us home. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Things will be better there. Things will all make sense there because we don't have sin corrupting things. But for now, we continue to do God's will. The purpose of Christianity is not to get saved and then breathe easy. The purpose of Christianity is to get saved and arrive at heaven breathless. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are who you are and that you are greater than everything we go through. And I just pray.